Big topics in data architecture call for big conversations. Big Ideas in App Architecture, the new podcast from Cockroach Labs, invites innovators to discuss their experiences building reliable, scalable, maintainable systems. Visit cockroachlabs.com slash stackoverflow to listen and subscribe. All right, everybody, if you are tuning in, this is part two of our interview with Pablo Galindo Salgado. He is a physicist and software engineer. He works at Bloomberg as a compiler software engineer on the R&D Python infrastructure team, but he is also a member of the Python Steering Council. So we talk about how he went from physics to software engineering, how he went from fixing a small typo in the Python docs all the way to helping guide releases and what the compiler will look like for Python, this very popular and well-loved language. So it's a very cool episode. This is part two. If you didn't catch part one, which aired last Friday, go check it out. Hope you enjoy, and thanks for listening. You mentioned that something about the limitation of the early setup was it was always just looking for the next token. And that triggered in my mind one of the questions I wanted to ask, which was the rise of generative AI and large language models in the recent year, um, and just sort of a lot of focus at big companies on applying this. How does that interact with Python, which I think a lot of machine learning engineers do rely on? Do you see any new language features or frameworks emerging to, to meet that need? One of the things that is quite interesting to see is that from the core team, we have been really bad at predicting what was the new big thing in Python. <laughs> like, you know, like making predictions is very hard, especially when they are about the future. So um, uh, for a long time, like, you know, the big thing many years ago was web development. Like, you know, Django was a big thing. And then uh, like data science became a thing and now it's AI. And we are always a bit behind. We have two strategies here um, in general. One of them is that we say, well, we cannot predict what is going to be the next thing. Now it seems to be AI, but who knows what is the next thing or if AI is going to keep going. So we try to make all possible workflows, so as many as possible available and possible with Python. And this is really great. For instance, most of these AI uh, frameworks that are surging and uh, are using Python, even they are actually not called fully in Python, actually most of them are C++ or Rust or or even uh, Swift in some cases. Uh, and they have like a layer uh, of Python on top that is what people use to interact. So, so people write the code in Python, but it's actually C++ or other things. And that is great. We like that because Python for a long time has some you know advantages and one of them certainly is not the speed, at least compared with these other things, right? But we have a solution for that. Uh, which is you can you can bring your compiled code to Python. And that is great. And people really like that because that unblocks you uh, this speed of development that is very important, especially, for instance, for AI that has a lot of research component when you try things and right. uh, you want. So it, it's really good because it allows you to keep going and it gives you this momentum as a developer. You, you do a little experiment and something happens and you can you have instant feedback and then you can move things around and you don't need to wait for compilation or whatnot. So that, that's, that's great. Yeah, you make an interesting point, which is that a lot of, you know, what goes into AI model development is, you know, research, testing, poking and prodding something where the outcome, you know, is often very fuzzy, right? Like you're not quite sure what about changing the weights or, you know, the data set produce that outcome. And so you want to be able to move quickly and hopefully cheaply to run those kinds of experiments over and over so you get where you want to land. Exactly. So sometimes we actually change the language 
for helping these communities. One example, for instance, is years ago, we added the matrix multiplication operator. So this is the add to the language. And that was mainly for the data science people because NumPy mm. likes to multiply matrices and that's a very common operation. And this is something that is not even used in the standard library. So we, we if you check, there is test for it but not like there is some you know module in the standard library that leverages this because we don't tend to use matrices, but in NumPy it's everywhere. And that, and that was because we thought, well, having an infix operator for matrix multiplication is very important for this community and this community is huge. So there was enough justification. In the case of AI, there is some things. For instance, we, we provide since a long time this idea of um, optional static typing to Python so you can optionally do this type hint so you say okay this is an integer and this is a float so it's not enforced at runtime but then you have tools that can operate with that and that's very important when you have these big code bases and there has been a lot of development in that world for the AI people so for instance a lot of them use these these tensors which as a physicist I have a a thing with the word because I, I think it's misused <laughs> but let's not enter there uh, but they have these these multidimensional arrays let's call them multidimensional arrays and type those has been very important and they can have different shapes and whatnot and uh, we added even some slight modifications to the syntax to allow to tell these uh, tools that are doing the stake checking this is a multidimensional array of this shape and you know you can transform so the tools can say, hey, you are actually using these two incorrectly, so don't even run the code because they want to work. So that's one example. Yeah, I mean, along with adding new features, what can you do, what can you change to help Python keep up with the trends and activity in the software development landscape? Right now, I think for us, what is more important is that Python doesn't get in the way because of this idea of like, you know, uh, experimentation and things like that. So we like to have uh, the productivity of the developers and um, we don't want the language to get in the way. And there is some cases when it does, unfortunately. For instance, one of the things that can happen sometimes is that Python for a long time, like many other languages, like uh, Ruby, for instance, and many non-compiled languages have been restricted to have the Python code, for instance, can only run in one thread at a time. This is what is called the global interpret log or the GIL. And this... This means that Python can be multi-threaded, but it cannot be parallel. So, you know, the threads are kind of switching between themselves, but you cannot never have two threads running Python code at the same time. And for a long time, that was okay. It has advantages, so it's not just something that, you know, is bad and that's it. But for instance, right now, we are feeling that in the data science world, and especially in the AI world, there's all these super parallel libraries underneath mm. C++, and they cannot really leverage the, the whole power of the thing because of this restriction. And for a long time, this has been a super hard problem. It's, it's a really hard problem, right? It's not that people have not tried to solve it. It's really, really hard. And it's really hard to solve it with the guarantees that you want, because obviously you can solve it, but imagine that now Python is twice as slow. So that's probably not acceptable. And just now we are literally in the steering council and in the Python community discussing the possibility of uh, dropping it because one uh, person, Sam Gross, uh, he works at Meta, he has an implementation actually, so not only the idea, but he has actually made the, the proposal with code to drop the guild in a way that is not... Um, uh, it doesn't have that much impact on performance, but there is a lot of trade-offs that we need to consider and, you know, compatibility and it introduces, you know, potential problems in the community. So it's not an easy decision, but right now this is a very impactful thing that can actually make a huge, huge change in the Python community and especially on the people doing artificial intelligence and data science because it will allow to leverage these this parallel workflows uh, when you don't have a lot of communication between the threads maybe or you're leveraging the actual raw power of, power of the uh, C++ libraries. Uh, but it's, it's a very hard change to accept, let's say, just without thinking, right? Because right. 
uh, we we know what happened with Python two to Python three. We have learned the lesson. And we don't <laughs> want we don't want to repeat that even in the slightest, and that's right. very important for us. Okay, so not to quote uh, Zen of Python at you, but to do that exactly right. In this is in PEP twenty. There's a, an right. axiom in there that there should be one and only preferably one way to do something in Python. And I, I feel like that's a reasonable proposition for most languages. You also sit at the seat where you're a language designer and you're you know evolving the way that the language behaves. And I think you gave some examples of matrix multiplier where maybe like that operator didn't exist before. And so maybe that's like a net new thing. But a lot of times, mm-hmm. the language features give us ways to more tersely express something that was already possible in the language. You just had to have workarounds to it. And it seems like every single time you add something, you almost create two different ways to accomplish that same goal, the way you were doing it previously and how the new right. language evolves. So how do you balance that need to have kind of consistency in what your expectations are with, I want to grow the language. I want to make it more powerful or terse or expressive in certain ways. How do you balance that against trying to stay with conventions that may be predated language features that you want to introduce? That's very interesting. Also, I have to say that, for instance, uh, did you mention matrix multiplication? But I think string formatting is a better example. I think we have six ways to do yeah. it. <laughs> sure do. I will modify the sentence to say there has been only one very good way to do it, let's say. Um, but by the way, there is other languages uh, that really like to say the opposite. If I remember Ruby or Perl, one of the two says, like, there has to be many ways to do the same thing, and they take pride on that, and that's fine. But yes, as you say, for a language that we have said for a long time in the sense, um, there should be only one way to do it. We have several ways to do it. And as a language designer, that is quite important. But there is two things here. One of them is that it's impossible to be omniscient and know the, the best way to do it. So obviously, if you start without premise, it's going to be very hard for you. You're going to find reality a bit harsh. Uh, so you need, a, you need a way to take these decisions. And it's very important what you bring in there because what you don't want... The, the worst situation is having two ways to do the same thing when one of them is not obviously better. Because if you have the old way and the new way, and new way is always better, then the old way will die. Mm. This happened with the string format in Python. The new way is always, almost always better. And nobody almost uses the old way unless they want compatibility, right? So that's good. But if you have two ways and one of them has one advantage, the other has others, and then you need to know both, mm. then we are entering the problematic realm. So from the language point of view, what we try to do is what is called syntactic contextuality. So the idea here is that uh, for instance, in Python, you introduce a bunch of concepts, right? For instance, the literals. Uh, you have like lists, you have tuples, you have dictionaries. And in these three cases, each one of them uses a different symbol. Uh, lists are square brackets, tuples are uh, like rounded brackets, and uh, dictionaries are like curly braces, right? So then, you know, one of them is list, tuple, dictionary. And then we have another different concept, which is totally different, which is comprehension. And this is a way to construct these collections by looping, but in a very terse way and in line way in a very, uh, I think, readable way, right? So you say something like um, number square for number in my collection. And that's the comprehension. But then this is the beautiful part. If you surround that comprehension with the square brackets, suddenly it's a list comprehension. 
and it produces a list. If you change the square brackets by a rounded brackets, then you have a generator comprehension that you can put behind, and then it's a tuple comprehension. And you can create a dictionary comprehension by using uh, curly braces and, and say, um, my number column, my number square, and that's a dictionary. And the sets, for instance, sets are also square, uh, curly braces without the column separating keys and values. And if you use uh, my number square for my number in collection and then you use curly braces, you have a set comprehension. And it's fantastic because, look, if you know what a comprehension is as an abstract idea, and then you know the symbols for the literals, which you learn very quickly, by the power of uh, your of your mind, now you know the comprehensions and you don't need to learn all of them because you already know them. Uh, and that's the ideal way we construct these new features. Uh, can you construct a list of numbers without a comprehension from before? Yes, you can. You can create an empty list and then you can loop and say for numeric numbers, uh, list.append number. Or a set comprehension the same way. You can say for numeric numbers, my set.add number, right? And you, you could already do that. But this new way has some advantages. You don't want to use it all the time. Sometimes it's not that useful. But it has very a lot of advantages. And uh, you already know them if you know what a comprehension is and you know the literals. And that's the ideal way we like to do the rest of the stuff. Do you know already how to, you know, add numbers, uh, you know, uh, subtract numbers and things like that and override the, these operators? So now you have this extra symbol and you know already how to override it because you have been overriding the others. So the idea is that you don't need to put all this extra information in your head because it's arbitrary. It's like, oh yeah, this was like this thing and this was that thing and, and how was this again? And like, uh, what was this special method? We don't like that. Sometimes we need to do it because we have some constraints there. Right, right. So you're balancing the idea of evolving the language with backwards compatibility. Yeah, in general, the idea is to have this uh, contextual information there in the syntax. So, so you have some syntax, you have a new concept, and then you want that to play nice uh, in a very kind of uh, easy way to say, right? And and we as language designers try to do that as much as possible. Obviously, not all the time is possible, and sometimes we need to create an entire new wall of concepts that is just a new wall of concepts, just because it's very difficult to just bring the past into this, just because it's new. And we have done that, for, by, by, uh, for instance, very recently with the match operator in Python 3.10. Because this is a new world of things. And there is some people that say, well, it looks like this, but it's not really like that. And that could be seen as a bad thing. And with this, I try to highlight that not always is possible. But we try to do it as much as possible. And I think that's, that's giving the language uh, historically a lot of good things uh, that people really like to to use and they learn very quickly because it has this property that it's very easy to refer to the old stuff to learn the new stuff. I really like that framing, that as long as we can deliver something that the community is going to want to adopt at a high rate compared to the previous iteration, then we didn't create two ways. We created one kind of preferred like a uh, cow path there, and we'd like people right. to go down that road. And it kind of relies on getting that early feedback from the community, from the PEP process to say, hey, does this seem like a real solid win? If not, maybe it's not the right way to design it or implement it, or uh, it's not a good fit right now for the community. Exactly. You're in kind of a unique position getting to guide a language and discuss it with other members of a steering council. What are you excited about for 2023? Are there some things you can hint at or tell us about that you know, you're happy to be working on or a direction that you think um, is pretty exciting for a, the broad array of Python users? Right. I think I'm very excited about the possibility. Let's, let's underline possibility at this stage. <laughs> Hopefully we have another session when it happens, but who knows, of, of dropping the gill in, in Python, what I mentioned before. Uh, still, we are discussing it, so it may not happen. Um, but I would like to think that there is a world when this can actually happen, just because this has been like 
blocking a lot of possible workflows and very exciting things in the language that for a long time has you know been making Python not leverage the modern times because right now, for instance, you have your phone. Your phone has like not a super extremely powerful processor compared to last year. It has more cores. And mm. right now, you have more cores, you have more parallelism. And if you have a language that cannot really leverage that parallelism fully, there is ways to do it, but not fully, fully, then it's kind of like always lagging every behind. And these times, you see like almost every year, it's even more cores and more cores. It's never like... 20 gigahertz, right? It's like now you have 30 cores and therefore 30 threads real threads, right? And, and with the hyperthread, twice as much. So the idea here, I'm very excited to see if we manage to find a way without, you know, making it too difficult for the community to adopt to, to really bring this work that Sam has made to drop the kill. That's one of the things. The other thing that I'm very excited about is this uh, work from the um, Windows team at Microsoft, the Faster C Python team, for a long time, we have been focusing on all these features and like community and whatnot. But since uh, Widow started at Microsoft working, um, uh, by the way, for the people that don't happen to know, Widow is the creator of the language, uh, Widow and Rosum. So he started at Microsoft uh, two years ago, I think, a team there. And uh, we have been focusing on making Python faster. And I'm quite excited about that as well. It's not going to be like as fast as C++. So if anyone is thinking that, they should get a reality check, I think. But, <laughs> but you know, uh, free speed is important. Like if you, the fact that you are now using Python 3.11 and then you get... 40% faster execution on your particular script, that's great because you don't need to touch anything and then you get free speed. Uh, compared to the compile world, uh, compilers uh, in different versions, they get sub 2% speed. So your code gets a bit faster, but it's like 1% faster and that involves like, I don't know, like a pile of books they big to implement and like thousands <laughs> of lines of code, right? So we are still, you know, there is, um, I wouldn't say low hanging fruit, but like maybe, right. maybe middle hanging fruit. Uh, that we can access in the Python world. So I'm very excited to see how much we can push it uh, until we get into the 2% is a really big win situation. Um, but hopefully a lot of years still since uh, we arrived there. Sweet, very cool. All right, everybody, it is that time of the show. We want to shout out someone from our community who came on and contributed some knowledge. Thanks to Peter Lawry, awarded two days ago. What is the purpose of using direct memory in Java? Peter, thanks for coming on and providing an answer. Never understood the question asked says why we use direct memory. Can someone give an example? Peter did and has helped over 14,000 people. So thanks, Peter, for sharing some knowledge and congrats on your Lifeboat badge. As always, I am Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. Email us with questions or suggestions for the pod, podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you like the show, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. I am Kyle Matowski, a senior software developer here at Stack Overflow. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at KyleMitBTV, and you can also find me on Stack Overflow with user ID 1366033. So I'm Pablo Galindo. I am a Python core developer, Steam Council member, and release manager. I was at Bloomberg in the Python infrastructure team, and you can find me online uh, on Twitter mainly or GitHub uh, with the username Pablo G. Sal. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.